Our reading this afternoon is from Luke 11, verses 5 through 13. This is what Holy Scripture says. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The Gospel of the Lord. Good afternoon. It's good to be with you. Yes, I got a haircut. I think you, uh, if you've been with us before, uh, you, you recognize I had more hair. Um, most of my life, I've been terrible at asking for help. And I blame my mother. I get it from her. Uh, but it, it's true. I go to the grocery store. I don't know if you've ever had this experience. And you're looking for something you can't find. And it's almost like the last thing I would do is ask someone who works at the grocery store to help me. I would rather roam the grocery store for 10 minutes looking for something, and, and I may not even find it. And I go to the cashier, and the cashier you know, will ask me, Sir, have you found everything you need? And instead of putting her out or having someone to have to go find it or even you know, causing a trouble with the people waiting in line, I'll tell her, yes, I found everything I need. I am willing to lie to the cashier because I don't want to ask for help. I don't know where that comes from. Uh, it, it is deep within me. I have this rejection of admitting uh, that I need someone to do something for me, to help me. Psychology Today, the website, has an article that talks about the importance of developing this skill for your, your work life, for your home life, for all of us to develop as, as people this important skill of asking for help. And for some reason, a lot of us find it so difficult. And I think in the, in the States, maybe part of that is we want to be self-reliant. We want to be strong. We don't want to show weakness. We also don't want to show that we're indebted to anyone. And, and there's a whole host of reasons why we struggle to ask for help. But what I want you to see from our passage today, that this is the very thing Jesus says is key and integral to our relationship with God, especially to our prayer life. It's this willingness to ask, to ask. Last week, we looked at the greater context of the passage we read today. If you recall, if you were with us, the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray. And Jesus shared with them the Lord's Prayer, and that's what we looked at last week. 
And the passage we looked at today, this parable, was Jesus' follow-up to the Lord's Prayer. And he's showing us here that God has a desire. God finds joy in giving when his children ask. Unfortunately, so many of us have a very narrow view of what God is willing to give us. I read a story of, a, of an author. He was reflecting on his childhood. And in sixth grade, his father took him to Kmart to celebrate an accomplishment he, he had made at school. He, te- he took his son to the store. They, they entered the store, and with a sweeping gesture, he told his son, to congratulate you, I'll buy you anything you pick out in this whole store. Well, the boy's eyes widened, and, and he was humbled and, and incredibly uh, excited. Uh, but as he reflected on the experience, he did not once think about going to the stereo section or the expensive bikes or anything that cost more than $100. He went and got this cassette tape holder that was about 50 bucks. That's one of the things that he wanted. And he thought, this is a wonderful gift, and, and his father bought it for him. And he was content with it. It was only years later that he found out his father had gone with him with $1,000 cash in his pocket and his checkbook, in case that wasn't enough. And that is so often how we approach God, isn't it? We're so content with small things. It brings to mind the famous hymn, Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. And Jesus is teaching us here in Luke 11 that God wants us to come to him to ask. Jesus is almost pleading with us here to ask. But it's counterintuitive. We we don't want to bother. We don't want to annoy. We don't feel like we deserve it. There's all sorts of things that we have to work through as broken, sinful, wounded people to enter into our Father's joyous, overflowing heart for us. And so often it's our misperception of who God is that's the cause of our unwillingness to ask. And so today what I want to do is look at three things. I want to ask these three questions. Why should we ask? What should we ask? And how should we ask? We're going to look at this parable and this teaching of Jesus to answer those questions. So first, why should we ask? We're going to spend most of our time here. Jesus here is trying to break through our false perceptions of who God is. That's really what he's trying to do. And, and again, we talked briefly about this last week in looking at the Lord's Prayer that comes right before this passage. But if you recall, we talked about at the Lord's Prayer, Jesus begins with that all-important word of Father. Remember, we talked about that last week. Father, and if you grasp Father, God as Father, it changes how you approach God in prayer. It revolutionizes your relationship with God. Martin Luther uh, reflected on his experience in the monastery. He said he was never taught to ask in prayer. 
For whatever reason, he was never taught to ask. And it wasn't until he discovered the doctrine of justification and his adoption into the family of God as a child of God, it wasn't until that point that Martin Luther realized he could boldly come to his father and ask. It was his theology that was central to his ability to pray. His ability ability to go to his father and ask him to meet whatever needs he might have. There was a a story years ago of a teenager. This is back when George W. Bush was president. Uh, A teenager from Norway uh, created quite a stir when he decided to call the president of the United States. So he dialed the White House. Uh, The 16-year-old claimed he was just calling out of a curiosity. He wanted to have a chat with George W. Bush and invite him to Iceland and see uh, what he'd say. Now, in order to get through security, the teen pretended to be the president of Iceland. And he was surprised when his his initial call uh, didn't pass through a switchboard. It actually went directly to a higher office where they began to interview him with questions about uh, ways to identify who he was. They asked him, you know, all sorts of personal questions. And, of course, they discovered he was a 16-year-old and that he wasn't the president of Iceland. And so the police came, took him to the station, asked him questions. No charges were filed. But the whole point is this teenager didn't have access to someone of such stature and of such importance. And what Jesus wants us to understand is that we do have access to our Father in heaven. He is eager to take your call. He wants to hear from you. And so will you ask? I love this part of the story of Lazarus and Jesus raising his friend from the dead. There in John 11, Jesus, as he's about to do this miraculous act, he he makes this statement that I find profound. He says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, I knew that you always hear me. And I wonder how many of us can say that. Do you know that the Father hears you? Do you know that he wants you to ask him? This is what Jesus is attempting to solidify in our thinking here in this story of the neighbor asking for bread. Jesus asks you to consider this scenario. You have a friend who's arrived at your home from a long trip. They come late at night. All the stores are closed. So you have no food to offer your friend. So you go to your neighbor and you ask for some bread for three loaves. Now, in this culture, in Jesus' culture, hospitality was of supreme value. And in fact, receiving and welcoming someone into your home was not just a statement on your reputation, but on the entire village's reputation. It was important for the whole community to be seen as hospitable to visitors and guests. And so Jesus asked us to imagine this scenario where, you know, you go to your neighbor and you ask him for bread, and this neighbor is living in a small house, 
uh, it's a, imagine a one-bedroom hut. And what does the neighbor say? The neighbor says, don't bother me. The door is locked. My kids are in bed with me, and I can't get up to give you anything. Now, this is intended to be a ridiculous response. This is intended uh, to be an unbelievable response. Jesus wants you to hear that and think, well, no one would say that. No one in Jesus' day with this high view of hospitality would ever deny a neighbor with this kind of lame excuse, so my kids are in bed with me. Now, one uh, commentator uh, applied this idea to a more realistic scenario in our day to help us maybe understand the dynamics a little better. He said, he put it this way, he said, imagine a friend calls in the middle of the night to say that his wife is in labor and he needs to get her to the hospital right away, but his car won't start. Can he borrow your car? And imagine you say to him, I'm sorry, I left my car keys in my kid's room. They're asleep. I can't get them. You would think to yourself, what a lame excuse. That's ridiculous. Of course he wouldn't say that. And that's exactly how you're supposed to see this, this example, this parable that Jesus gives. It's similar to the comparison he makes later on in the passage in verse 11 and 12 where he talks about, you know, if a son asks for a fish, who will give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, who will give him a scorpion? Can you imagine a father, when their son asks them for something good, would give them something harmful? That's ridiculous. And that's exactly the point Jesus is making here. And so he's trying to shape your understanding of God because he knows that some of us do indeed believe God is like that. Maybe we don't want to admit it, but we have in the back of our minds this perception of God as a father who really doesn't want what's best for us. We have in the back of our mind that maybe we don't deserve for God to be generous to us. Maybe we do, in fact, deserve the serpent. Maybe we do, in fact, deserve the scorpion. And Jesus is trying to break through these misperceptions we have and these deluded ways that we view God and to, for us to see him as good and loving and desiring to bless us. That's what Jesus is trying to get us to see. And so this is why you should ask. Because of who God is. Now, in order to see this, you have to make this important interpretive decision regarding verse 8 in this parable. Um, because I'm arguing that this parable is to inform your understanding of who God is. Now, that's a little different than what, how some people understand this parable. There are some who take this parable as, instead of shaping your view of God, in fact, it's trying to encourage you to be persistent in your prayer. Maybe you've heard that interpretation of the parable. That you're in fact being told here by Jesus to, bold, to uh, pray boldly and persistently and ask God for things. Similar to the story in Luke 18, if you're familiar with the Gospel of Luke, uh, the story of the persistent widow who is bugging the judge who doesn't care about justice, but just answers the widow because she won't get off his back. Some apply that understanding to this parable and say Jesus is teaching us the same thing. He's saying, basically, be persistent, be bold, bug your neighbor until he gives in and gives you what you need. Now, 
the difference in understanding of this parable comes in verse 8. Let me see if I can show you. Uh, verse 8 says this, I tell you, though he will not get up and give you anything because he is your friend, this is the neighbor who's in bed, yet because of his impudence he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Now, in the ESV, it's translated impudence. Some understand that Greek word to be shamelessness. But the question is, who does it refer to? Is it the person asking? Or is it the person in bed being asked? And this is where people disagree in the intent and the purpose of what Jesus is trying to say here. Some believe Jesus is saying that the word describes the person asking for bread. That they should be annoying. They, should, they shouldn't be worried about being shameful and, and bothering this person and asking them. But the problem is the parable doesn't talk about asking multiple times or, or asking more than once. And in that culture, that would be a very acceptable thing to do because hospitality was so important. If you could receive a guest and feed them, of course you should go ask your neighbor, whatever the time. And so that doesn't quite fit the cultural context of the person going boldly to his neighbor's home at night without fear of being disgraced or shamed. Instead of encouraging us to pray persistently, Jesus seems to be talking about the man in the bed. Jesus seems to be saying this, the neighbor who's in bed may not get up and give his friend bread because he's his friend, yet because he doesn't want to be shamed, or viewed as stingy by the village, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. Do you see the point? So in this parable, you are to see yourself as the one knocking on the door. And you're to see God as the one in bed with his kids. And Jesus is trying to show us something here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to summarize it using the words of Daryl Johnson. He's a seminary professor. It's kind of a long quote. Let me read it to you. Even if the guy inside hates the guy outside, he's going to get up and give him as much as he needs because he does not want the story to go around the village the next morning that he did not help to extend hospitality. There's something that goes beyond friendship and love, and it's the avoidance of shame. I'm not going to damage my reputation. I'm not going to lose face. I'm not going to hear the villagers say in the morning, why did you fail to help? Shame on you. So the parable is not about us who ask. It's about God, who is our Father. And this it connects, don't you see, this connects with the Lord's Prayer, the very beginning of the Lord's Prayer, when we pray, Father, hallowed be your name. What is hallowed be your name? It refers to God's reputation. Do you see that? That Jesus is showing us that God the Father always acts in a way that honors his name. God has many names throughout Scripture, but the name above all names is Yahweh. I am who I am. And God used Yahweh as a covenantal relational name that spoke to God's relationship with his people. God said, I will be your God and you will be my people. And God, by doing that, attached his reputation to us. And we see that throughout the Old Testament. In Exodus 32, 
God is so fed up with his people. They've worshipped the golden calf. They've turned their backs on him. And he said, I've had it with these people. I'm going to wipe them out. I took them out of Egypt. They're so stubborn. I'm done. And Moses says to God, what are the Egyptians going to think? I am, you, you are I am, you are with us, you are your, you, we are your people. If you wipe us out, you've gone against your name. He uses his name, Moses uses his name as a defense, to, and God changes his mind in the story. 1 Samuel chapter 12, Samuel is, is talking to God, Israel has chosen Uh, To have a king like the other nations. They've rejected God as their king, basically. And Samuel says this. He says, for the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people. Because the Lord was pleased to make you his own. Again, connecting God's reputation with his people. David, in his defense in Psalm 25, says this. For your name's sake, Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is so great. In other words, God, because of your name, forgive me. Because of your reputation. Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel talks about Israel being brought back out of captivity. And the Lord says, I will restore you. I will cleanse you. I will free you. Why? Because of my name. For my name's sake. And so this gives us a wonderful assurance for why we should pray, because God's reputation is connected to him answering our prayers. God has put his reputation on the line. He will answer. And you can trust that. He loves you, yes. He also wants to hallow his name. May his name be hallowed. May his reputation be great. As John Piper puts it, it was God's good pleasure to join you to himself in such a way that his name is at stake in your destiny. It was God's good pleasure to possess you in such a way that what happens to you affects his name. And so this helps us understand The rest of of Luke 11, when in verse 9, Jesus says, ask and seek and knock. Why? Not because you have to be persistent and wear God down. No, because you can be confident that God is ready and willing and able to answer you. Know that, believe that. That's what Jesus wants you to hold on to here. So that's why we should ask. What should we ask? Now you might say, hey, I've asked for a lot of stuff and I haven't seen God answer That has not been my experience. That might be your response. I mean, Jesus says, ask, it'll be given to you. How many of us have asked and it hasn't been given to us? So does Jesus guarantee that whatever you ask, you get? Well, of course, we need to see that Jesus isn't making that kind of guarantee, is it? I mean, he isn't, he's he's arguing that God is a good father. How many fathers in the room would say you're being a good father if you give your kid whatever they ask for? None of us would say that's being a good father. No, in fact, as a good father, you know what's best for your kid. And I think the Lord's Prayer here is a great starting point When we try to answer that question, what should we ask for? That's what we talked about last week. Jesus shows us, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. 
Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us and lead us not into temptation. I love how uh, Tina uh, Bosch, the author, uh, says this, you know, the Lord's Prayer, if you were to craft a prayer that was kind of counter-cultural in its very nature, though you can't do any better than the Lord's Prayer because of the petitions that Jesus gives us here as his disciples. She, she puts it this way, it's strange to plead thy kingdom come while living in a country that long ago rejected monarchy in favor of popular sovereignty. It's dissonant to confess thy will be done in an age that celebrates autonomy and self-determination. Jesus confronts us with a subsistence prayer in a culture of affluence, a commitment to forgiveness in the face of outraged polarization and preservation from temptation in a landscape defined by desire and indulgence. The Lord's Prayer challenges our notions of what is truly desirable, and that's precisely the reason we need it so desperately. And so we see as we enter into the Lord's Prayer, it begins to shape what we ask for. It begins to shape us, doesn't it? And God answers. Now what I find fascinating about this passage is at the very end, <laughs> where Jesus brings even greater clarity of what we truly need, when he, he says at the end there in verse 13, that the thing that God will give us is the Holy Spirit. He says there, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? See, Jesus' assumption is that's ultimately the thing we need most of all, is God. And that when we ask, He will answer. He will give. Jesus is encouraging us to pray for a deeper relationship with God, to want God more than anything else. And that God will make good on His promise. It's the one thing we're guaranteed to receive. And it's the one thing we need more than anything else. And so that's what we should pray for. And finally, how should we pray? Paul Miller's book on prayer, A Praying Life, is, is a classic. I encourage you to get it if you, if you want to read a book on prayer. Uh, he shares a story about his son, John, when he was six months old, they were sitting at the dining room table and he's John, little John stuck out his hand in the general direction of the butter and he said, Bubba, Bubba. And, uh, you know, <laughs> Paul Miller, in reflecting upon that, was like, you know, we didn't correct our son by looking at him and saying, John, you should say please. And we didn't correct our son by saying, and it's not bubba, it's butter, John. And we didn't correct him for being selfish and asking for the butter and not, you know, thinking about other people. We didn't worry about any of those things. We were so pleased that our six-month-old son would ask for bubba. It was, in fact, his first word that he ever spoke, which I find kind of odd. But... Uh, <laughs> They laughed and gave him the butter. And you see, sometimes we get so wrapped up in trying to pray the right way in how we should pray. And, and we shouldn't be so concerned about that. Our loving Father, Heavenly Father, just wants you to ask in whatever way you can get it out. Ask Him. 
And that's the wonderful picture we see in Scripture of how the Holy Spirit, we're told by Paul, actually will help us pray when we don't know how to pray. That the Holy Spirit prays with and for us as we ask like a child. And if you've ever asked a child or ever seen a child ask their parents for stuff, they, they, aren't, they aren't worried about asking the right way. I went to visit um, a couple this, this morning who, uh, and their, their, their younger daughter, um, she, uh, she just came right up to me and she's like, will you play with me? She hardly knows me. And she wasn't worried. She wasn't intimidated. And how could I say no, right? I mean, she's so cute. I'm like, yes, of course. She wasn't worried. And so how we pray, I think, isn't so much a, a problem or something to hold you back or for you to worry that you're using the right words or doing it the right way. But I will say this, that Jesus gives us a great example and model in, in the Garden of Gethsemane in how he prayed and how he asked the Father in these famous words where he said, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. I love how Jesus was willing to ask even though he knew what the answer was going to be. Jesus knew he had to go to the cross. Jesus knew that was the Father's will. And yet Jesus asked. And for some of you, you need to get over that worry and concern that you're asking the right thing or maybe you've got the wrong perspective or whatever it is. Don't let that hold you back. Jesus shows us the Father wants you to ask and when we ask, we say, Thy will be done. We ask boldly. We ask persistently. We ask in an annoying way. (laughs) And we lay it at the Father's feet and we say, God, you are good, you are loving, may your will be done. John Calvin um, puts it well when he argues that God will either give us what we ask or give us what we would have asked if we could see everything from his perspective. Did you get that? That God will give us what we ask or what we ask or we would ask if we could see everything from his perspective. And I'll, I'll end with this story that, that Tim Keller shares in his book on prayer. He, he talks about uh, in, in his early years uh, training for ministry, he was trying to uh, train to be a pastor, to be a preacher. And when he entered into seminary, he was in a relationship with a woman who wanted to break up with him. And so he started to pray uh, fervently. He said, Lord, I can't do this without her. I really need her. Please, don't let this relationship break up. And, and of course, in hindsight, that was kind of a misguided prayer uh, because it was a good thing the relationship broke up because he never would have met Kathy, who he did end up marrying. And they had an amazing, fruitful ministry for decades in New York because of it. Now, did God deny Tim his prayer Tim says yes and no, that there was a core aspect of the prayer. There was this desire to have a partner in ministry. God answered that just with a different person. (laughs) And and Tim is able to reflect on that and say, God, you showed yourself to be faithful. And he's able to trust in God's goodness. And I pray that you and I 
you'd be able to do the same. Let's pray. Lord, I, I, I ask that you would help us to be people who are willing to come to you, to ask boldly, to ask faithfully, the things that we want, the things that our friends want, the, friends, the things that we need, may we not fear asking in a way that could offend or embarrass, but may we have the heart of a child. May we see ourselves as your sons and daughters, and may we go with boldness and say, Father, answer our prayer. This is what we need. And I pray you would Allow us to create that kind of mentality and, and humility and, and desperation. Lord, because prayer very much is desperation. It's just, it's just our bringing our needs to you. And so may we do that. May you foster that in us through your Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.